Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIconf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Harish Dodi, co-founder and CEO of Datatron, which is a startup focused on helping companies deploy and managing machine learning models. As companies move from prototypes to products and services, tools and best practices for productionizing and managing machine learning models are just starting to emerge. Today's data science and data engineering teams work with a variety of machine learning libraries, data ingestion, and data storage technologies. But that final step of managing and deploying machine learning models, there are tools out there. Not many of them are open source. And uh, the ones that are available tend to be tied to specific machine learning libraries. So as someone who specializes in helping teams turn prototypes into production-ready services, I wanted to hear what Harish has learned while working with organizations who are aspiring to become machine learning companies. And Harish is actually part of a very strong slate of talks at Strata New York this September, uh, focused on model lifecycle management. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Harish Dadi, co-founder and CEO of Datatron. Welcome to the Data Show. Thanks, Ben. You have an interesting background. You've worked at some of these really kind of uh, well-known technology companies. So I'm just going to rattle off a few of your uh, previous positions. Software engineer at Twitter, senior software engineer at Snap, and then a software engineer at Lyft. And uh, uh, you were early at each of these companies, so you saw what it took to build a data infrastructure, particularly for machine learning from the ground up. So... If you were to distill, Harish, what are some of the common lessons that cut across uh, what you saw at some of these really uh, uh, famous companies? Sure. So first of all, as you mentioned, that I was a very early person in and worked in these places like Twitter, Lyft, and Snap. I, throughout my um, time there, I built projects from scratch. So uh, one uh, important lesson, you know, uh, which is like most common is how do you scale things on machine learning? Uh, that's something which is extremely important and you need to uh, think about it ahead of time. And that's where like the infrastructure that you choose for machine learning really uh, plays an important picture. You may think that data scientists, they have nice algorithms and all that, but Typically, most of the time, these data scientists, what I observed among all these companies is there's an 80-20 rule where they are actually spending 80% of the time working on operationalizing the model and only 20% on the actual algorithm. And the bad part is that every team, they have uh, different sets of tools that they use. Uh, they have different people with different mentalities and all that. Trying to come up with a unique, uh, unified platform 
where people can use machine learning and deploy models um, as a as a and a unified environment is very difficult. And that's where you know, like for example, one of your teams has really solved the scaling problem well. Can another team leverage on top of it? And unfortunately, in all the places I have worked, uh, most of the times we are so focused on our project. But there is a heavy possibility that whatever your team builds might be applicable to a lot of other teams inside your organization. And that's where the, one of the biggest challenge I have seen is, can we make something generic enough so that every team can leverage on top of it to reduce the 80-20 work to as much low as possible? So the data scientists get more time on on actual algorithm part, and they have another system that can help on the operationalization of the model part. So let me ask you this, right? So as you alluded to, you know, in the early days of some of some of these companies when they're startups, obviously we all want to be gigantic companies with millions of users, but you you don't have that in the early days. So you basically just use the tools that are easy and maybe you're not factoring in scale. And like you said, there might be multiple teams working on similar things. And which which uh, brings this notion of technical debt. So then uh, you start incurring technical debt, right? Yes, that's a very good point and a very good observation. Um, you're absolutely right that uh, when multiple teams, uh, particularly on the data science side, they are so much focused on their projects. What they don't really understand is that there is a lot of duplication of their work that is going on. And, you know, for example, uh, let me give you a small little example. It's typically, one of the important steps in machine learning is called feature engineering. Feature engineering is where the data scientists, they come up with the features to help them to provide input to the model. Most of the times, my, in my, uh, my experience, what I've seen is 80% to 90% of the features are already built by other team members inside the team. But the thing is, when a person again starts, he kind of starts from scratch. And that's where his whole time and effort will be gone, whereas he could have just leveraged something that was already there. So that's one example. And then uh, there's also the notion of basically, if you're organized so that you have multiple data scientists in multiple parts of your organization, they might have different styles, different tools, different best practices, right? Yes, that is correct. And this is very much common across all the companies I have worked. So for example, imagine that there are teams like fraud teams, there are teams like pricing teams, or you know other teams, for example, like risk team and all these things. What typically happens is data science is not viewed as a centralized organization right now. It is viewed as a per team basis. So typically fraud team, they have a data scientist uh, who work in the fraud team and they have a lot of domain expertise, for example, related to fraud. Similarly, risk team, the data scientists will be very specific to risk uh, technology and they have a lot of domain experience there. Often what happens is when you have this type of, this type of like siloed teams, most of the times they have preferences. For example, one data scientist team, they prefer like Jupyter notebooks. Another data scientist team, they just prefer like their own regular laptop with a terminal, for example. And another data scientist team, they prefer, uh, for example, a commercial technology out there. Uh, the problem is that most of the times you cannot bring like a harmony among them. And when your organization is typically small, it may be okay. You know, when you have like, let's say, a couple of data scientists and that's pretty much it. But as your organization is gross, the problem is that uh, these da data scientists, 
they have different preferences and that will be a headache for the other teams in the organization like engineering and devops teams who need to support them let me tell you an example in my own experience in one of the companies i have worked we have built infrastructure related to spark ml in the beginning days and we were a heavy spark shop and uh, so we built everything you know around around the spark ml thing but later when our organization grew a lot of people came from tensorflow background that suddenly created a little bit of political uh, frustration in the team because everybody now wants to move to tensorflow but you know we have invested a lot of time effort and energy in building uh, the infrastructure for uh, spark ml now as you can imagine it's like kind of like starting from scratch so this is a huge thing that uh, you know suddenly teams wanted to move to another thing all this will be uh, you know hidden technical debt that you need to incur and you, if you don't uh, encounter it at the right time you know and when the right time is something specific to your organization you will not go at the pace that you want it so imagine like let's say like right now you have like uh, two models running in production and you know that in the next 2 3 years you are going to 20 models 30 models you need to start thinking about this ahead of time otherwise if it is too late you're kind of like disrupting uh, in, uh, you know all the productivity of your teams because teams get frustrated there will be inter inter team uh, frustrations as well as data scientists they feel like they want to move faster but their production uh, partners they cannot move faster because infrastructure is always built on a framework basis so all these things you need to think about it like that's why you know these days i i observed that uh, organizations are creating like a centralized teams this centralized team is responsible for you know maintaining a machine learning type of infrastructure who can help to deploy operate um, you know monitor all these things so you gave an excellent talk at Transcendence called lessons learned deploying machine learning in production at major tech companies and i will link to the web page of your talk cuz you have the slides there which people can uh, glance at but actually uh, as you were uh, as you've been talking i've already kind of uh, come up with two things that companies should probably consider uh, i don't know how you feel about these but uh, the first is this notion of a feature store where data scientists can share features as you know that a lot of the work uh, data scientists do is in uh, creating these features and i believe uber when they announced their michelangelo internal data science platform that was one of the things that they made sure people notice is that uh, they had this uh, feature store and the second thing is that i think people sometimes uh, have this mindset that the data scientists will agree to use only one blessed framework right <laughs> like tensorflow or r or uh, or something else right so but the re- reality is uh data scientists will use whatever machine learning library fits what they're doing right so for for example pytorch is gaining steam big dl and so on and so forth so how do you feel about these two things uh, feature store and kind of this uh, flexibility around machine learning libraries yes um so i think distributed feature store is a very important concept that uh, you know all the machine learning teams data science teams should consider implementing it is not so so easy and not so straightforward you know that because you know when you build features features are always dependent upon the version of the data set you are building version of the model you are building and so on so forth uh, and typically your models they don't they don't get built uh, they always get tied to uh, a virtual environment where you have different software versions in which the model is getting built 
So often what happens is if you have a centralized feature store, my experience is that you can like uh, reduce at least 30% to 40% of the duplication that is actually happening in your data science teams today. And this can be even, even spread to your data engineering teams, depending upon the type of organization. Now, the second question you have asked is about getting fixed to a machine learning framework. In my experience, what I've seen is that you cannot assume that your team uh, will get fixed or married to one particular framework. It's highly unlikely. And it's not just that TensorFlow is popular today, so people are moving. It's not like that because there was a time when Kefe is, is like super famous. And today, deep learning frameworks are coming from, new deep learning frameworks are coming from Google, Facebook, PyTorch, as you mentioned, from Facebook. One of the things that I'm seeing is that typically data scientists, they want freedom in what they want to use. They, uh, because their project, uh, they know what, how to solve the business problem that, they, that was given to them, and they know what framework would be the best. Now, the problem is that if you build an infrastructure, tying yourself, you're kind of tying your data scientist team to one particular framework. So you need to make sure that you build a generic enough infrastructure so that any data scientist can use any machine learning framework, any language, uh, or any, any machine learning library. And that will suddenly unlock uh, them a lot of new opportunities that they can test. And this type of responsibility is typically should be on the engineering team to unlock them. However, this is this is not like you know an easy task to do it. So you often like need a team or someone like that who can help uh, data scientists on a timely basis. So a couple of questions. So on the feature store. How common is it to run across companies doing this now and in your conversations? Because you you've been uh, talking with companies. And then on when you say uh, support many libraries, does that mean uh, support in the prototyping stage or all the way to production? So two questions. Yes. So when I talk to companies these days, everybody knows that their data scientists are duplicating this work because they don't have a centralized feature store. And everybody I talk to, they really want to build this or even buy it, depending upon what is easy for them. So definitely they are thinking about it. And particularly organizations, they see that data scientists, their data scientist teams are most likely going to get tripled or, you know, maybe even more than that in the next couple of years. You know, because today data science teams may be like two teams for them, but they are already imagining that it will be like 12 teams or even like more than that. So as you can see that the number of data scientists is increasing. And one of the pain points that I observed, which, which was told by these guys is, uh, when a new data scientist joins this organization, there is a extreme amount of ramp up period that goes through because he's actually figuring out what the data sets are, you know, what the features are, so on and so forth. But if they had this concept of feature store, the ramp up period can be much faster. That's was the feedback given by these people to me. The second uh, concept that you asked is about the framework uh, tying to the framework thing. What I observed is that everybody, or you know, from the prototype on, from the prototype, they can use whatever they want because they can they can experiment on their laptop. It can be as simple as that. But you know, giving them the flexibility to go from prototype to production is kind of like giving them a lot of freedom because let's just say that. Some data scientists tested something on their laptop or some Jupyter notebooks, uh, some framework that they have never even touched before. And let's say that it is, you know, getting good, giving good results on the model or something. 
they quickly want to test it, you know, test this hypothesis on the production part. And if the path to production is a big hassle, that's like, again, like kind of like demoralizing the whole team. So rather, I would say that if you have something that you want to uh, have flexibility from prototype to production, that will be like a huge favor to your data science team. And they would love it. Speaking of production, so let's talk a little bit about this notion of uh, deploying and monitoring and production. But as an entry point to that, I remember, I recall we had a conversation a few months ago where, uh, uh, you know, I was uh, kind of describing to you that I've been hearing about this new role, machine learning engineer, which is distinct from data scientist and data engineer. And you kind of said, well, that makes a lot of sense because data scientists will never really be responsible for production. And to emphasize that point, you said, you know, data scientists will never want to wear a pager. <laughs> yes, that's a that's a very good uh, observation. So first of all, as you rightly pointed out, data scientists, uh, think of those people who are like these PhDs coming from different universities or research places. They are really, really good about, you know, the algorithms part. They are not the people who want to, you know, who are like really good at operations work or some like something like DevOps type of work. Or tracing. So they, uh, I, think, I think the way you described it to me is that uh, when something goes wrong with a model, just chasing it down and figuring out what's happening, right? So. Yes, correct. So uh, typically what happens is in enterprise uh, life cycle, there are typically three phases. There is a first phase is called discovery phase, where your data scientist, once you give access to data, They'll try to come with some models that are interesting. But once what happens is often discovery is not enough. You have to go to production to uh, to make sure like your model is working correct for your end users. Because in discovery phase, you have some assumptions, hypothesis, and so on. So now when you go to production phase, what happens is like imagine like Lyft, for example, um, you know, it has a it has like a pricing model right now running in production. But let's just say that for some reason, the production, uh, you know, the model is not running correctly. Uh, it is not at that point of time, it is typically not the responsibility of data scientists because they usually come at a later stage. But when something goes wrong in production, whoever is the closer part, that guy is typically a machine learning engineer, or sometimes it can be a DevOps person or an engineering person. He, is, he gets paged. And when he gets paged, it's his responsibility to fix whatever is possible at that point of time, so, you know, example can be like, okay, maybe turn off to another model or switch to another model or something like that. Data scientists typically, they finally go through the postpartum analysis of what happened. And the problem can be as simple as, hey, their feature vector changed and they're expecting one thing to the algorithm, but their feature vector changed. And this was done by some other team. And that can be as simple as that. But the thing is that they are not the people who are very close to production. They are the people who come in the next tier. So the machine learning engineer, the he's the guy who is more closer to production and really responsible for productionizing your models. And that's why these guys, this is a new role that is coming. It's not, it's very, very much analogous to when Hadoop came initially, there was something called as a Hadoop engineer or a Hadoop developer. It's very much analogous in, in that scenario where for data scientists to productionize this stuff, they are hiring a new role called machine learning engineer or deep learning engineer, depending upon the models. So actually, this uh, this ties to a couple of the lessons you described at Strata San Jose, which is also something that I'm hearing uh, other people talk about. 
for example, my uh, friend David Talby, who's been on this podcast, who's a, who runs a data science consulting firm, also talks about these two things. The first being is that your real work actually starts after you deploy your model to production. That's one. And then the second is, with that in mind, you actually need experienced and senior people after you deploy a model to production. So describe uh, each of those things. Yes. So typically what happens is people often think that a machine learning model building is, hey, they are going to explore some data, maybe train with a model with some trained data set. And then finally, whatever model they get, they can deploy. That's that's the end of it. But that's not true. Because what happens is once you do your first deployment, that's where your actual work starts. And this can be more a little bit on the engineering side and a little bit on the data science side too. For example, um, you know, once you deploy, how do you know that your deployment has gone through properly? If your deployment failed in the middle, what could you do? It's very similar to the software world here, you know. Uh, but you know, this type of issues on the model side can cost like millions of dollars. Similarly, when you do, for example, everything in in models, machine learning models, you have to take a decision through some a sort of A/B testing. And one of the things is in A-B testing, uh, do you want to do random A-B testing split or do you want to do a controlled experiment A-B testing? Because always your model is meant for a purpose. Uh, so that is that comes only after deployment. And also there is a service level agreement that has to agree with your models and the end, and the end applications. For example, your model is getting called through from a mobile app. It has a different uh, service level agreement versus your model is getting called from an internal application. It has a different service level agreement. Similarly, there is a new concept that is coming, which is called model selection at runtime, where it's not just about one model for your use case. It may be multiple models that can happen, and you really want to choose the right model at runtime, and that's called model selection at runtime. So imagine that uh, you know you your data distribution is not usually uniform. You may have more data points in one location versus less data points in another location. So you can't just have one size fits all model, rather it should be more like a model per location, for example. And finally, once you deploy your model, you always need to monitor things on a continuous basis. It's not something that you just sit for like one hour after the deployment and it's over. Because your model can behave not in the right way at any stage during this period of time. And ideally, you want an alerting system like a pager system that alerts you that, hey, this is something... Uh, not right. And this is not just a kind of like a Splunk alert. It's more than that because models, applications, they are different type of applications. Now, uh, the second part of your question is uh, why senior people are coming towards the end of the model process. So if you think of like, let me just create an analogy to you of software development. Generally, software development, there's a requirements phase, uh, design phase, and then there is an implementation testing and finally the production part. Typically, uh, senior people are very important in the early part of the stages, which is the requirements phase and the design phase, because they come up with the design architecture. For example, uh, you know, when I was doing Snap Stories, it's extremely important for me to make sure that the architecture is scalable. And that's one of the early decisions I took. And that's where today's Snap Stories, as you can see, it's scaled to several billions. In the similar analogous terms, in the machine learning case, there is a requirements, data preparation, and training phase. But towards the end of the phases, there are two critical phases. One is called deployment to production, 
And second one is monitoring and optimization. Typically, the last phases is where you need a lot of experience because the first phase is like requirements data preparation. Anybody can do it. Even data scientists can do it themselves. But deployment to production and making sure your service is up and running, your models are up and running is very critical. So typically, these two phases, uh, are unless you have a lot of experience, you won't be able to do it. So monitoring is also very important. As I said, monitoring is not just about log, you know, putting some log alerts, but it's more than that. Typically, people try to do that. And similarly, deployment is not just about Jenkins type of deployment, which people tend to mistake in it. It's more than that. So that's where, uh, you know, the last phase is deployment monitoring, because anything happens during these phases can cause company losses of, you know, tens of millions of dollars, if not more. So that's where these phases are very important. So a couple of things, actually, uh, on the monitoring side that I think uh, you and I have talked about in the past, too. The first is... uh, you know, we talked about all of the challenges with a data science project from start, from end to end, you know, from data collection, uh, preparation, features, and so on and so forth, deployment to production. And usually in the context of one model, but uh, as you point out, the reality is we're going to be looking at a tsunami of models in many companies, right? So whatever it is that we're doing now, we need to evaluate so that it scales to an age where we have many more of these models. And then the second thing is that uh, uh, the thing that I've been trying to kind of socialize within the data community, and I gave a keynote about this at Strata Singapore, is the notion of when you're monitoring, don't just monitor for business metrics or machine learning metrics, but you know, uh, also pay attention to whether or not your models are exhibiting or behaving badly, right? So they are they uh, acting fairly? Are they exhibiting bias, right? So. The idea being is that training data might have been skewed towards one sort of distribution and not representative of the population actually using your data product. Yes, absolutely. Uh, So first of all, um, the reason why we are stressing the point of monitoring, monitoring these many times is unlike software applications, A applications or any models, they go through a concept decay, uh, meaning that your model decays over a period of time. So as you rightly pointed out, when you train a model, you have a historical data set in your mind and your model is probably trained for that historical data set. Now, when you deploy this model, you know, a lot of things can change. For example, the user behavior is not the same as what is expected in the historical or some something other change happened that your model is taking some wrong decisions. That's why no matter what, model monitoring is a must here because your models why they decay, when they decay, it's it's completely out of your control. But at least you should at least uh, get alerted when something like this is happening. Now, on the surface of this model monitoring, as you rightly pointed out, it's not just about like, you know, let's just put some KPI type of thing or some something else, but it's a holistic view. For example, you may have like a roots mean squared error on the model uh, that you build, like a regression, simple regression model. This is a simple metric that you calculate. But the thing is that often when you predict, uh, you know, results for a model, at a later point of time, you know the actual labels for your model. So the idea here is how far are you from the reality? And you need to measure that on a continuous basis. So that's where, you know, your actual model you know, is it performing really well or is it not? It really comes out of the picture. And the second part of this is called anomaly detection. Typically, like all the requests, when they come to your model, 
you have to observe the model like every few hours to maybe even like a day or something like that. Is there something anomaly that is happening? And that anomaly can happen as simple as you pointed out that the model is ex- is trained on a, on one set of historical data, but the data that is coming is totally different. And it's like totally different expectations. Another type of example is that, say a model is dependent on a features like user user location or you know like uh, features like user timestamp or something but instead uh, the model is receiving let's say not the user location but maybe like uh, some other location you know so your model still works fine because it is getting the input so in this scenario what happened is somebody actually you know disrupted the feature vector the model is expecting so you need to have monitoring or guards at different phases also the third type is called uh, sometimes don't expect that your model is going to tell truth always. It's as simple as imagine that you are, for example, you have a pricing model. For some reason, the pricing of an e-commerce item on your website, it suddenly said like $800, whereas its actual price can be like maybe $80. Now, why when it said $800, you can't just be like, oh, blunt and just say, just put $800 because that's going to... Uh, completely uh, be a bad experience to your customers, then they will move to your competitor's website. The idea here is that don't just think that your model is going to always tell the right answer, but you need to have an additional business logic on top of the model result so that you can catch this. For example, in a particular category of items in an e-commerce website, the range can be max, can be like $100. So when the model just answers $800, Oh, there is something wrong, but at least you clip it to $100. And that's where, uh, you know, this whole thing of monitoring is very important because even for a company like Alexa, uh, uh, when they recently uh, uh, has a South Park episode, uh, what happened was uh, the character inside the TV was ordering an item on Amazon.com. Everybody who has TVs turned on uh, actually got that item. So as you can see that, that's a big, bad, very bad customer experience for Alexa. So these are like, that's why this is a very important, crucial step in the model monitoring. So, you know, as as uh, we've been discussing, there will, uh, we will get to a point where the typical enterprise will have many, many of these models in production. And, uh, you know, inevitably something will go wrong. So there will be some need to audit and do an end-to-end kind of uh, uh, reproduce something end-to-end. So in your mind, uh, Harish, what is the state of reproducibility for data science in enterprise? I mean, I can't imagine. Uh, It's probably like uh, the rest of us, right? So people are just having a hard time reproducing uh, these things. Yes. Uh, So this is a very good point you brought, Ben. Typically, what happens is when something happens wrong in production, Often it's a kind of like a cat and mouse game between the engineering team and the data science team because the engineering team will say that, hey, something is wrong with your models, guys. And the data science team will be like very, it will be very difficult for them to understand what is wrong uh, because, you know, they don't have something like a reproducibility environment. All that they know is, oh, uh, this model uh, behaves. I, I, I grabbed the data from this folder and, the, yeah, exactly. and, the, and that uh, fold, the like, folder has changed. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. The, as you rightly pointed out, the, da- the data might have changed or something. So often what happens, I have observed is, uh, particularly when you take things to production and you are like slowly dialing up your traffic, 1%, 2%, 3%. Let's just say that somebody hit a problem at 10% traffic. 
Now, suddenly the data engineer or whoever is a machine learning engineer, he's going to like just roll back the model and just tell that, hey, there is something problem. Can you go and fix it? Now, the problem here is that data scientists, they don't know. They don't have an environment to reproduce that problem exactly. And often what happens is, and this is not like something not good, it's just that it's not available. They often change the algorithm or change the formula in the hope that it will work. And the second part is, let's just say that they fixed the code. They don't have a reproducibility environment to test it. So again, they go take it to production and they hope that it's going to work. And again, let's just say that they, the, they deploy, redeploy it. And again, they dial up the traffic 1%, 2%. And now instead of 10%, they hit a problem at 20%. This is an ongoing cycle that happens continuously. And this is exactly where the problem is. Um, you know, Until they, they are able to get to the bottom of the issue, it's just a hope that it's going to work. Or they just change the algorithm completely. By the way, uh, this, is, this uh, need to reproduce is not necessarily just to understand what went wrong, where wrong is kind of uh, not serious, but it could be something seriously wrong, like, I don't know, security attack or something bad, right? So anyway, uh, uh, Harish, you know, we started out this podcast describing your background, having been an early data engineer at uh, Twitter, Snap, and Lyft. And then, of course, since then, uh, you and your co-founder started a company, Datatron, and uh, very quickly, uh, what is Datatron doing today? And what do you envision this whole space that we've been discussing looking like in a few years? Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, so as you can rightly see, Ben, that uh, I have really experienced this problem at a very niche level. Um, and often I, I was the person who was frustrated with all these different issues that we talked about. Um, and that's where the motivation for Datatron, where I, we want to really put all the learnings we have we have taken from different companies we have worked uh, into something like a horizontal machine learning platform, which can help in productionizing uh, machine learning and deep learning models easy. And the, and the um, target the target here, Harish, is enterprise, right? So it's not necessarily uh, tech companies in Silicon Valley. Yeah, it's uh, the target is enterprise, but you know some tech companies in in Silicon Valley also uh, appreciate what we have built, and they know how why this is very important uh, for their organization. So typically, productionization of the models today, there is a the platform is called machine learning model lifecycle management platform because all your models go through a life cycle, and you have to have some sort of platform that is generic enough to facilitate productionization of these models. And that's exactly what me and my partner, Jerry, actually built. And we have taken all the learnings we had at different places and put this into a product to automate it. Because one, one of the things that we have really seen is hiring machine learning engineers or this type of talent is very difficult. And it's getting extremely difficult going forward. So we really want to facilitate this. So you're using machine learning engineer to help machine learning. So what sorts of things have you been able to automate? So we primarily automated around eight steps, uh, we call it. One is feature engineering and designing of feature engineering. Second one is model training on a regular basis in production, model deployment and production, model testing, monitoring, debugging, providing debugging environment for the engineers and the data scientists, and finally, model management. And all of this, we have focused on the production part of the enterprise lifecycle. Interesting, interesting. So 
look ahead five years. Are we going to need less data scientists and less data engineers, Arish? Because uh, we're gonna we're on the road to automating a lot of things, right? Yeah. So uh, I think uh, looking ahead of time, uh, the way I see it is that. First of all, data scientists are going to be in huge demand. As you can see right now, they are in huge demand. Everybody, you know, if you have a skill data science in your resume, you're gone from the market very quickly. So it's not like data scientists will be scarce, definitely for sure. But it's not like work that the data scientists are doing still is involved uh, a little bit of manual effort because you have a lot of domain knowledge, for example, in your model. And that is difficult to automate it through a product. So data scientists will be there for sure. Uh, now, the part of automation comes in terms of the common, common parts of machine learning, which is like, for example, productionization, you know, training, deployment, testing, monitoring. I believe that that is the space in which instead of you hiring, let's say, you know, a 30 people team to build a horizontal platform like this for your organization, you can automate it with just a simple product. And that can be more scalable for your organization. And that's how I see it. All right. Well, this has been a great conversation. And thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Ben. Great talking to you. You can follow Harish Dodi on Twitter at Thinking Keto. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.